welcome to the Philanthropy Impact Podcast, where we discuss all things philanthropy, impact investing and sustainability. Hi, and welcome to Philanthropy Impact's Walk in My Shoes series for members. The events unfolding in Ukraine are at the forefront of many people's minds right now, with the UNHCR estimating that over 1.5 million have crossed into neighbouring countries in the space of 10 days. A devastating blow to the efforts already in place to tackle the global displacement crisis that we are facing across the world. Philanthropy Impact exists to be a resource for those who want to tackle some of the world's pressing issues. So today we are hosting a special session to answer the question, how can advisors support their clients in actually support in response to the Ukraine crisis? My name is Zofia Sahanik and I'm the Director of Membership and Development here at Philanthropy Impact and the person to talk to if you'd like to know more about our training and how to make the most of your membership with us. You can reach me in the chat or um, I'll share my email at the end if you're watching on YouTube. As always, we will try to keep this, this discussion to strictly 30 minutes, although I have a feeling it will be hard. We do encourage you to use the chat to introduce yourselves and have your say and please pose questions to our panel. Our chair for this discussion is Philanthropy Impact's um, board chair, Rennie Hoare, who's partner and head of philanthropy at Seahore & Co. And joining Rennie, we welcome Enver Solomon, who's the CEO of the Refugee Council, Anna Luisa Pizarras, sorry if I'm getting this wrong guys, from the donor advice fund Prospero World, and Konstantin Sivokin, who's also a trustee of Prospero World, and a very last minute addition, who was able to join us for just two hours notice, uh, Laura Kirksmith, who's the UK executive director of the IRC, who are also a member of the Disaster Emergency Committee. Thank you all so much for joining us today, and I will now pass over to John to make a start. Thank you, John. You mean Renee? Sorry, Renee. Sorry, the last two weeks have been John. Sorry, Renny. Yeah, well, I mean, good to mix things up then. And thank, thank you very much to what's an absolutely fantastic panel and helping people draw together information um, and be able to, to move quickly is absolutely essential. Um, in terms of trying to get down, down into the heart of things, Laura, I think if I could come to you first and just Firstly, to under, understand what it's like um, being part of the D Disasters Emergency Committee and then what you're seeing on the ground and the response so far would, would be massively helpful. Thanks very much. Um, so the International Rescue Committee is one of 15 member agencies of the Disasters Emergency Committee. And as you will have seen, we launched uh, an appeal last um, Thursday the response has been absolutely incredible. We have um, already, as you may have seen this morning, we've already hit um, 100 million in um, donations to the Disasters Emergency Committee. Um, so it has been fantastic, but of course the needs are vast and growing all the time. And I think we're set for a really long um, and um, complex um, crisis here in terms of the response of DEC um, members. So um, the fundraising won't, won't stop there. Um, you don't need me to tell you how awful the situation is. We can all see it on our um, on our TV screens. Um, the IRC um, has a presence in Poland already. We're just um, expanding our presence uh, inside Ukraine. Uh, we've seen one million people flee across that border into Poland already. The vast majority are women and children. Of course, um, husbands and brothers, are, men are having to um, stay inside Ukraine. They're being turned away at the um, at the border. Their needs are incredibly great as they cross the border. The average wait time to get across that border is um, uh, is three days now um, and there's very little emergency relief available as they're they're queuing to get across so they'll have 
a suitcase um, at best, um, sometimes uh, nothing. The temperatures are freezing sub-zero at the moment, so they would have been waiting in the um, in the snow. So in terms of the, the needs and the response that the DEC members are prioritising, um, the number one um, uh, priority is just emergency um, support in terms of food, water, shelter, um, medical needs. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that as well. So of course, um, providing items is one thing that we can do, sort of material goods, um, but actually providing emergency cash to families fleeing is really important as well. Um, the shops in Poland um, and in other neighboring countries are stocked with goods that they need still. It's just that they fled without um, cash on them or without being able to withdraw cash on their journey. So that's um, a really important priority for, um, for the member agencies. And, and beyond that, there is um, lots more that we are um, that we are starting to do, including ensuring that the refugees have access to um, information about their um, their rights as they cross the border, but also the services available to them. And I think that um, list of, uh, of needs is just going to continue um, growing um, and the people crossing the border will be um, crossing in a more and more um, desperate position. Um, and of course, those inside Ukraine um, will find their situations increasingly desperate too. So it's a multifaceted response, but really, uh, when when we're talking about crisis and emergency, that that's the the situation which is being seen on the ground at the moment. Um, Emma, if if I could come to you, please, and first, just to understand how how you've got into this role and a bit of your journey, and then also understanding how the Refugee Council operates and and the part it can play. Yeah, th thanks. So I, I took over as Chief Executive of the Refugee Council uh, nearly 18 months ago, and, and actually it's quite a personal journey for me. My, my mother came to the UK in the 60s fleeing political persecution in apartheid South Africa, and my father's uh, family were, Ju were Jewish refugees into the UK um, many decades ago now. So for me, as someone that has refugees, in in my body so to speak uh it's 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 a very much a personal journey to be doing this role now and at the refugee council we work with up to fifteen thousand people that come to the uk each year as refugees supporting them to integrate into the uk to access all the things that they need to rebuild their lives and for those that are going through the process of being allowed to stay in the uk we help them on that journey uh, meeting their needs. A, a big demand is therapeutic help and support and actually what we're doing at the moment is we're mobilizing to be ready to support Ukrainians when they arrive in the UK. There's a bit of a political storm taking place as we speak about the government's uh, pretty lame uh, mean-spirited response to date unlike other EU countries um, but we know Ukrainians will be coming here um, and they will need uh, advice and help about how to access benefits, how to get their kids into school. They'll have immediate needs about therapeutic support because they'll have gone through a, a great deal of trauma and they'll need general orientation. And we uh, are mobilized to be able to work with the Ukrainians to provide that support for them because we, we know that first period of arrival and settling and then beginning to integrate is so critical. Um, I, th I think that bit of, of scaling up and making sure that you've got the institutional readiness to accept of what is a very 
predictable wave that, that will be coming in and how do you help people on um, that assimilation, but also I think the huge trauma that, that needs to be counseled is, is critical. I, and I think that, that bit of preparation, other tools that can be brought to bear, con Constantin, I, I know that um, obviously so far we've talked about philanthropy and the tools that can, can be used. You've, you have a slightly different angle of thinking about things from impact investment, ESG. Are, are there things that we can be, be doing there and beginning to think about? Um, yeah, so just um, kind of a little, little intro. Um, I, um, I became part of the uh, Board of Trustees of Prosper World just very recently, just less than a month. And kind of my rationale behind this was to, um, as our organization is moving more towards ESG compliance and particularly focusing on the S part, which is social. Um, at the time with most companies are thinking, are thinking about the, um, environmental and, and governance. Um, so I wanted to see how, um, how I could learn um, about various tools about creation of um, tangible positive social impact and then implementing that knowledge into developing uh, effective tools for, for the ESG strategy. So this is about um, finding out what really works. It's not about just a box ticking exercise of now ESG, ESG compliant. Um, and I, I know that many organizations in, in the UK have uh, their own foundations and they're using um, funding from, um, from those foundations to support humanitarian aid. This is how they're trying to, um, I suppose, to cover the kind of the S part, the, the, the social, so being um, supporting the communities. Um, so that's really kind of one of one of the main angles. Really helpful. Uh, and and Annalisa, if I, I can come to you in terms of thinking about that use of of different toolkits, there's a huge amount of possible options out there, due diligence, people absolutely wanting to help. How, how, what are the ways that people are beginning to just work through that information and, and um, begin to make decisions? It's been amazing the response, as, as other panelists have said, and since the started, it's incredible. Everybody wants to help and everybody wants to do something. So what we've done, um, we've spent the last 10 days mapping what's going on, what the needs are, who's doing what, and trying to put the pieces together. And of course, in a situation like this, it's incredibly fast paced, incredibly changing. There's infrastructural issues within Ukraine. It's, it's a highly complex, um, rapid, changing situation so we we are focusing on looking in, in um both outside ukraine and we're working with some people on the borders of poland particularly with refugees arriving but also within country we're looking at identifying specifically what what is needed and what can be done with all the usual checks in place but obviously it needs to be done urgently so we've looked at about 30 organizations we've had um large problems trying to get hold of our own partners, the Klitschko Foundation are one of our, um, we've, we have a fiscal sponsorship program, they're one of our partners. We haven't been able to contact them for eight days, which is a huge worry, but there are a huge number of civil society groups who are working under the umbrella of established organizations. So we've been targeting those organizations, finding out what's going on where and what's needed. And we've been looking at groups in Europe, um, in the States, we spoke to people in Germany last week, the Netherlands, like all over the place. So we're trying to do 
um, due diligence and assess what's needed when so that we can help people to to really focus their giving um, and give it in a targeted way both within Ukraine and outside but it changes every day every minute as everybody is aware from hearing the news. And, and those organisations that you're you're seeking to do things with are they reg registered charities, civil society organisations so none of the above what 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 type of form are you are you searching out it's a, it's a combination of both so um my background's in crisis response i've worked in zimbabwe in myanmar in um, syria and various different places and what um i've sort of found across the board this is a very unique situation but what i found across the board is that the role of civil society in the situation of panic and crisis is incredibly powerful but obviously you have to work through you know regulated channels you you have to ensure that a donor's funding is being used in the right way so we're looking at um at local organizations and their international partners and seeing where we can add value so one of the things that we do is um as i said this fiscal sponsorship program which means that we can accept donations from uk taxpayers in a tax efficient way um and we've been looking at at how to channel that funding um, having maximised it by accepting it here, being able to claim the gift aid, do all the checks and balances, and then go through vetted organisations who are working with civil society within Ukraine and on the borders, um, caring for the needs of refugees who, you know, need, as, as, um, as Laura said, you know, a list of quite basic but also quite complex things that need to be done sort of now. Um, so we're trying to activate the sort of civil society groups that we have, but under the umbrella of registered charities, whether they're American 501c3s or whether they're European entities or within Ukraine itself, um, registered charities, including our partners who haven't been able to contact, but we'll continue to attempt to contact them. And that trade-off between speed and safety is a really difficult one as there's an emerging crisis. And uh, look, Laura, I, when, when talking about the, the developments on, on the ground, um, I think that it sounds like a partnership approach, uh, people who are, who are specialised and, and doing their, their specific roles. C can you explain a little bit more about how, how certainly even the 15 organisations um, which you're, you're the tapestry with, how, how that works in practice and how... How do you make that as strong a, a body as possible? Thanks. Um, and yeah, and I mean, Ada Louise was exactly right in terms of the importance of um, local partners. And for us as DEC members, it's the local partners that are also the first responders. There are some fantastic NGOs um, already operational in uh, inside Ukraine and in neighboring countries. Um, local government is also really important for us as a partner. Of course, they're the first one to provide um, services both inside Ukraine and, uh, and neighboring countries. So we've been going through um, similar uh, you know, processes to what Ada Louise was describing in terms of um, um, firming up agreements with um, with local partners, they're very capable, but of course um, they are um, small scale um, and a week ago could not have anticipated having to respond on anything like the scale that they are already having to respond on, let alone what's coming down the track, I think, in terms of um, in terms of growing needs. So um, and the advantage then of um, of having a setup like the Disasters Emergency Committee is that we, um, as 15 um, large um, NGOs based in the UK, can coordinate um, in terms of which 
which partners we're approaching and um, firming up agreements with so that we're not overwhelming those local partners with 15 approaches at one time you know we will we will do the coordination um, bit first between us um, but I think it's also just very you know beyond partners um, what the DEC enables us to do is to um, coordinate both our assessment of the needs um, but then also the um, the response to those needs in terms of who does what and um, OCHA the the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs and um, part of the UN will sort of uh, take the lead on the coordination um, uh, piece with all the different NGOs. Um, but within that, we will work out between us who leads on health, who leads on uh, food, who leads on cash distribution um, and ensure that it's as um, effective a response as it can be in a very, very challenging and fluid situation. Really, I mean, fascinating to hear how it all, all fits together. And Constantine, there's a question that's come up in the chat. I, I don't know whether as trustee, as a custodian of, of things, you'd feel comfortable answering it. It's, it's saying, what, what are the challenges in terms of accepting donations from Russian donors? And are, are there things that, that need to be considered there? If, if that isn't one you're comfortable with, we can, we can definitely pass, pass over. Probably Anna Luisa would be better placed um, answering this question. Sure. Um, so we have quite strict um, checks that we have to do about source of funds and who we're receiving funds from. Um, and that, you know, it takes a variety of different ways, but we do have to check where it's coming from. And that's something that our bank requires, something that our constitution requires. So it is something that we would look at. But of, of course, we wouldn't reject funding from a Russian who wanted to do good. Um, but we'd obviously need to check anybody whether they were Russian or non-Russian to see what their source of funds were and if there was any kind of conflict we would send that back and there have been cases in the past where we sent things back not in this scenario yeah. but um but yeah in our historically we we send we do send funds back and don't receive them if we think there's anything that rings alarm bells. I'll just give a personal example I have some Russian friends that, that donated and they all wanted to do this anonymously because they're saying there is a law that if you support the, the enemy, this is treason. Uh, and that's why, you know, they're hiding the names, they're giving money, but they don't want anybody to know. And, and through that, then, is that a benefit of a donor advised fund, giving one, one layer of, of, sort of opacity and allowing people to help without feeling that as, as though the, the government can then step in? Exactly. Yes. So our donor advice fund, one of the um, benefits is that people can give completely anonymously and, it, it, you know, technically a donation then comes from Prospera itself, so it gives that barrier of protection, um, but also allows for flexibility so people can, can do things that they might feel endangered of. And as Constantine said, we've received so many anonymous donations. Um, it's, yeah, it's something that we're very mindful of. Yeah, yeah that makes, makes a lot of sense. And Ember, in, in this we've been talking about due diligence and partners and it feels you're, you're in scale mode but are, are you looking at people who are operating um, in Poland on the on the border and, and beginning to look at those those bridges of how people can get inside your stable of expertise and assistance yeah no absolutely I mean what what we're starting to look at is is look at the network of of Ukrainian and Eastern European community organizations across the UK actually who are going to be so pivotal and so important in welcoming Ukrainians and providing 
that um, that support around them when they start coming to the UK, which is already happening in, in other parts of, of, of Europe. I mean, obviously in Poland, where there's a large Ukrainian community already, you know, that's underway. But there, there, there is a significant Ukrainian community here in the, in the UK. And, you know, we, we, we're looking to build networks with those organizations. Many of them will be quite fragile, quite small. They won't have much capacity or capability. And we want to be able to uh, develop a program where we can quickly ensure that they build up their capacity and capability. We've done something very similar in the UK with Afghan organizations uh, to enable them to support the wave of Afghans that have come to the UK in recent months and we want to do the same with the Ukrainian community organizations here as well because because they're going to be as I say you know play a really important role because when Ukrainians arrive they will plug into their community networks that people will tell them about and, and that's the best route to get support to them. Yes I, I, I think un understanding where people might land and then and then trying to build out from those safe and trusted networks where probably not much feels that safe and trusted um, is, is going to be vital. And Laura, um, one, one of the things that certainly is, is fascinating is big charities, it feels, have the resources to be able to take money in and scale up very, very quickly. And that, that I think, is a huge appeal for right now. Do, do you feel that then there will be a point where there are more targeted smaller partners that do very specific things that you'll have you'll have to bring in or what what does what does the next wave of of activity look like yeah i think that's right we can scale up quickly but as as we've touched on we can't do that without the local um, partners so we're sort of um you know we're trying to get the programs off the ground at the same time as we're writing the strategy for and um, what those programs will look like um ultimately so you sort of fi find the areas where you know you can make a big um difference quickly um and you do that through the coordination mechanisms that we've um discussed but at the same time we're continually assessing needs and looking at where that will grow and there may well be um particular areas where we do need to sort of deepen deepen our support as well as um, continue to broaden it and I think this point actually on um, information provision might be one of those particularly as refugees move um, beyond the neighbouring countries into um, into other countries in um, Europe into the UK as Ember, um, as Ember has said um, we find that often when we talk to our um, our clients the refugees that we work with um, what they want is not necessarily stuff um, but information on how they can you know where they can get a trained to wherever they want to get to or who they you know if they need legal aid who they can speak to or where the nearest hospital is and um so you know that's just one one example is that you know i think we'll be looking at um building out a platform that we already have already called signpost to ensure that um there is somewhere where ukrainians can go to get um accurate up-to-date information about um uh, about how they can can meet their own needs um, yeah very useful and, and thinking of then the assistance that people can can play. Obviously, a lot of the the philanthropy impact members are advisors to high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals. What play? What role can these advisors play in being able to get funds in the right place, assist assist their um, their clients through? Constantine, I see, I see you. No, if I could come to you first, I, this is. 
it feels that there's a timely aspect of it and, and how people can really assist. Yeah. yeah. So the, the advisor's role is ultimately to make the donors and investors' lives easier. <laughs> That's how I look at it. And professional advisors need to provide solutions to donors and, and investors that they um, don't have time or resources to, to develop themselves. This is not something they can find online. Um, so to give you an example using, using Ukraine, uh, um, if a donor wants to make a donation um, towards the humanitarian aid in Ukraine, he or she can easily find an organization and make a donation and feel good about it. Uh, um, however, this donor might not know that now many charities are struggling to deliver humanitarian aid because of all sorts of logistical problems. And uh, Luisa was mentioning earlier some infrastructure issues, and bottlenecks, and, and so on. Um, so therefore, um, knowledgeable um, and, and creative advisor uh, who would be able to do the research on the ground, and as, as Laura mentioned earlier, um, having contacts there on the ground and, and understanding what the real issues are is, is very important. So at Prospero, we mobilize our um, network on the ground. Um, I, I personally speak with uh, people in the Ukrainian government who are coordinating uh, humanitarian aid almost daily now, including weekends. They haven't slept for 11 days um, since the war started. And um, I'm also in contact, for example, with the coordination center at the embassy of Ukraine in Kiev. Uh, call my personal contacts in Ukraine, different cities, to really understand what the issues, what the current issues are um, and, and what the situation is. Because the situation changes dramatically um, every day and the priorities change as well. So it's very important to understand what the issues, are, the problems are, bottlenecks and, and, and so on, to be able to have a, a targeted response that really makes a difference. Um, and with that, then you see some amazing efforts that have happened in terms of people collecting rugs and medical supplies and they're, they're getting convoys of vans out there. Uh, it, when weighing up such a dynamic situation, is money always the best thing to give or how, how do you play the provision of, of things that are very tangible into being an assistance or does that maybe block other much more structured agencies from, from doing things? So it, um, it, it just seems that sometimes being well-intentioned, it might be going into the wrong place. I think you're, you're absolutely right. But um, my view on this is it's a combination of a big structured approach, but it takes time. Right? You need different committees to look at it and agree. It takes time. But people need help now. Um, and therefore, in my view, there's got to be both structural, big approach, bigger issues, bigger help from large organizations, and at the same time, smaller targeted aid um, um, that, that targets kind of specific needs on the ground that can be delivered very quickly, you know, as you already said, uh, using vans and lorries um, that, that are going now. Yeah, I've had someone from my street go and load a whole load of stuff out is, I mean, truly amazing to see what people are doing. Um, John, I, I see you're, you're come sweeping on for us to distill down our, our best ideas, so I will, I will hand over to you. 
Okay, thank you. Um, that's absolutely fabulous. I think we can go for another hour or two, but Sophia said it's 30 minutes. So what we have to do is we're told. Probably the first time I'm doing what I'm told. Um, anyway, the role of philanthropists is really key and also professional advisors, as Constantine has, has mentioned. This is really essential. Uh, thank you, Enver, Constantine, Anna, and Laura for, for speaking and making this really interesting, but enlightening, but also for what your organizations are doing to help in a really difficult situation. Um, and so thank you. So I'm gonna ask each one of you 30 seconds, final words of wisdom that everyone can take away. Uh, it's so interesting that not one person has left uh, that joined us. So that's really quite unusual and fabulous. So uh, let's start with Laura. Thanks. Um, this may sound odd on a webinar about Ukraine, but I think my um, my final message would be to, for uh, a request for people to keep their eye on other crises too, and their concern for other crises too. Of course, we've seen um, Ukraine produces a lot of wheat. Um, places like Yemen and Afghanistan that are already in crisis are reliant on um, Ukraine for exports. Um, so this isn't happening in isolation. There's a lot of need in the world and we can't let Yemenis and Afghans be the victims of this um, crisis in, uh, in Ukraine too. Great, thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah, I'd absolutely endorse that point that Laura makes. I think I think it's really important. And the, the other thing I, I would say, and it's really just validating what someone's put in, in the chat, that it's important to have faith in organisations who, who have a track record and experience in this space. Um, you know, we've been operating for 70 years. We supported Vietnamese boat people when they came decades ago, uh, people fleeing the, the horrendous war in the former Yugoslavia in the, in the Balkans, uh, and, and, and have trust uh, in organisations that, that have the internal expertise, capability and capacity to respond. Thank you. Anna? Um, Laura said what I was going to say, actually, <laughs> we were talking to somebody this morning in Kenya who was actually talking exactly about the grain situation and we have partners in eastern Yemen and Afghanistan and it's something we've been talking about almost of course we're prioritising this at the moment, it's a stamina game as well, so um, we hope very much that people will continue to support the efforts that are being done in Ukraine as well and alongside um, the other the other situation which are you know really in need of support also and this is not going away overnight this is a long game so stamina i think is the key thank you constantine um as a ukrainian i just wanted to say thank you to everybody who has um, organized this event and to everybody who is supporting ukraine now during these difficult times and um all the help and support has been incredible so i just want to say a big thank you uh this is personal to you as well isn't it because that's where you're yes. from my, my my family is there yeah. Oh, well, our hearts go out to you. Or any the last word? I think with this, the sharing of information and finding those those trusted partners, as, as Enver said, is is critical. Um, I know Philanthropy Impact have, have published a list that um, people can can use. And just it's a, as people see high quality ways of getting involved, um, please share them. There's no use in bottling them up. I think as philanthropists, if we can act in a coordinated way and we can really make sure that best practice is shared as far and wide as possible, we'll be doing what needs to be done. Great. Thank you very much, Sophia. 
Hi, no, that was great. Thank you, everybody. Um, we've had great attendees and we've had someone listening on their dog walk apparently as well. So thank you very much uh, for your time, for your energy and your expertise. And I echo John, um, hearts go out to all of those affected right now. Uh, we are about to do our first face-to-face -face event, so I do need to just mention that right now, um, although to me it feels slightly wrong right now, but we are. So we're back together. We're going to be doing something at Seahor & Co. Um, on the 15th of March in the evening after work. It's going to be a networking event where we're going to be exploring technology and its impact on professional advisors and their clients. So I hope to see you there. It's um, open to our whole audience, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you all and have a lovely week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.